It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, here's your host, Matt Fitzgerald. Thanks for listening. This week, I venture outside the bounds of Christianity and speak with Rabbi Lizzie Heideman. Lizzie is the founder and the rabbi of Mishkan, Chicago, a post-denominational community of faith here in Chicago practicing a radically inclusive form of Judaism that draws off of the strengths of various Jewish traditions. The group grew from a small handful of people that first gathered in a living room in 2011 to a congregation of more than 1,500 people who gathered for the high holidays this past year. If you are a Christian, you'll hear areas of great similarity and some difference across our two perspectives. There is a lot for any Christian leader to learn from the success and the growth that Mishkan has experienced over the past few years. I am very grateful to all of you who have sent in suggestions for future interview subjects, and I'm in the act of following up on those. You can always reach me at preachers at christiancentury.org. You can also find that info on the Christian Century website, christiancentury.org. For now, here's my conversation with Rabbi Lizzie. Lizzie, welcome to Preachers on Preaching. So glad to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you, Matt. Terrific. So let's just jump right in and talk about your congregation and who they are and who it is that you're leading in worship and speaking to and, and preaching to. Um, so I want to I want to start by explaining where the word Mishkan, the name of the community, even comes from. Mishkan is the word that describes the the tabernacle, the traveling, wandering prayer tent in the desert that the Israelites, after leaving Egypt, create the space that they build for God. And it travels throughout the desert, and it is where God's presence infuses. And the Torah is very clear that it's not about the space itself, but that it's about the people who create it. God says, make me a sanctuary and I will dwell within them, the people, the tocham, the, you know, the, the individuals. And then it's really clear in a, a very, a very unusual way. The Torah doesn't always say men and women and, you know, sort of give the whole spectrum of society, but it, it really makes clear that everybody made contributions from their own generosity and spirit and talents to the Mishkan to create it, you know, curtains and rods and poles and architecture and um, that this thing was built by the desire and the will of the people to have holy space, to create holy space. So I feel like I model what my gift is, you know, or my set of gifts. I sing, I play guitar, I think a lot about how to create Jewish prayer space um, and how that needs to be welcoming and inclusive and put people at ease who are intimidated by Hebrew, who are turned off by, you know, what they remember to be the large intimidating structures of their childhood or the um, financially imposing demands of the synagogue that they left 10 years ago and are never going back to or, you know, the bar mitzvah that they had that was totally meaningless or like all of the baggage that people bring. I think a lot about that, and I think that's one of my gifts. Um, and people don't only come because of because of what I bring. Um, there are a lot of people who are bringing their gifts to leadership that I think is part of what creates a structure that people walk into. Um, our 
our um, most interesting hire, I would say, of the last few years. There are now five of us who are full-time at Mishkan. It was, it was first, it was just me and I was a volunteer. Our first full-time hire was an executive director to figure out how to create some kind of financial model to make this possible and then to hire me full-time. Our next hire, and I think our most creative position, was that of the community mobilizer. Somebody whose job is to figure out who the individuals are who are here, take them to coffee, get to know them, and help people plug into different ways of connecting that aren't just showing up on a Friday night to services, but that are getting involved in social activism or creating social spaces for people over 40. That's that's the... So you know, the, chronolo- right? the chronology went... As for in terms of the professionals there, the executive director who's in charge of administration, yes, and then you, yes, and then the next person is a hire whose aim is to integrate the community, yeah, right, and to connect people to one another and mm-hmm. to the opportunities there. Yes. That's a really the, the church could learn from that. I mean, we tend to go, oh, we we have we have a need, we should probably hire another pastor rather than thinking of these specialized areas. So you noticed a void in the Jewish community here in Chicago in terms of did the did the other options feel I don't want to ask you to say bad things about about the other temples and synagogues in the city but but some was it a generational matter were they missing out on millennials and and younger yeah i think it's a pretty well documented phenomenon now not just in the Jewish community but across religious communities that um, millennials and Um, Young people in general are not showing up in the spaces where their parents and grandparents found, whether it was religion, spirituality, community, um, are not going to synagogues. And you can tell me if it's the case about churches as well. But of course, that was also true here. And as I, a young Jewish person, I, I moved back here. I grew up in Chicago, but I moved back here when I was 30. And as a young single Jewish person looking for not just community, but also spiritual community, um, I was finding that lacking. So when you yourself were, we call it church shopping. I was. um, You were going to different temples and not finding communities of people your own age. Most synagogues have some kind of young adult group, whether it's services or social events. And... What I, speaking personally, was looking for was not so much a group of young adults to just go to services with. I I was looking for a group of people to be a spiritual Jew with. Um, and the young adult piece of it was is really part and parcel of just there are many different populations of people that haven't found their niche in um in institutionalized Jewish life, um, and whether that's gay, lesbian, trans community, whether that's young adults, whether that's spiritual seekers of any age um, that want to walk in and find a safe space to cry on a Friday night or a, a safe space to not know the words of the traditional Hebrew prayers but be moved or guided toward inspiration. There was a lot of room in Chicago to create Mishkan four years ago. And you've grown remarkably since then, right? Mm-hmm. Um, How did you start? Were you in somebody's house? Did you rent a space? We were in the living room of someone who is still on our board today. Um, somebody who, you know, somebody who had been in the synagogue world for a long time and who himself was looking for inspiration. 
And so we were hosted, you know, it was going to be services and dinner. Friday night, Shabbat services and dinner. And he offered to have dinner brought in for the 15 or so people he expected would show up. You know, when Jacob said, oh, you know, we'll cater for 15 or so. I said, maybe prepare for, for 30 or 40. He said, no way, not going to happen. And that night we had about 65 um, so an auspicious beginning. It was an auspicious beginning. In yeah. four short years, have any traditions become ossified? Are you already finding we've always done it that way? Yes, for sure. Um, that makes me feel good. Oh my gosh. So, you know, it's funny because you asked me to be on a podcast about preaching and I thought, you know, I don't do so much preaching. I don't really think about my role in services as preaching. I think about my role as being a prayer leader and being a teacher. That's sort of the most literal definition of rabbi is just teacher. Um, and I, I feel like I could count the number of sermons I've given definitely on two hands over the last four years. Um, and I used to pride myself a lot and pride the community on that on a Friday night when we gather, instead of the rabbi standing up and, you know, laying down the truth and telling people, you know, what to think and, you know, how to be Jewish, that what I would do is present text, present some text usually from the weekly Torah portion or from a piece of Talmud that connects to the weekly Torah portion. I would work really hard to find a good juicy text that I would put in a little study sheet. We make, you know, a little folded folded pamphlet um, and hand that out. And then in the middle of services, kind of break from the energy of um, – the sort of the meditative, musical, prayer energy and enter a more analytical, thoughtful space about whatever subject matter is popping out from the text. And would you do that extemporaneously or would you have remarks prepared? Or would the, or are you talking about the community themselves doing like a community doing a Community doing a kind of learning together. Sometimes I would... Sometimes I would sort of introduce it and then we would do, you know, 150 people, 200 people, sort of like all learning together as a group, you know, which sometimes makes it like hard to hear people who are raising their hands and standing at one end for somebody at the other end of the room to hear. Um, oftentimes, just because not everybody knows everybody, or even if you do know the person sitting next to you, um, there's something really special about turn to the person next to you, learn this text, and what what about it bothers you, moves you, jumps out at you? What's a problem here? What do you want to know? And then coming back together and parsing it out. And then usually, yes, I would have some kind of, like the takeaway that I had before I started this conversation. Quite often, the conversation would make me realize my takeaway was not nearly as good as what Rebecca said or what Ricky said, you know, and so then I want to, and then, and then I'll, you know, that sort of gets incorporated. And I usually will say, I want to be really clear here. I think all of your ideas are equal, if not better, to, to what I was thinking. But here's what I was thinking, you know, and then that's just by way of wrapping up so that we can end services and go to dinner. Um, so I used to think that we're going to do that. We're always going to do that because it's so holy. It's so wonderful for people to be able to study together. Nobody studies anymore in the way that, you know, you studied in college or that, you know, if you go to yeshiva, you know, some yeshiva, a place to learn Jewish text. You know, you just you learn for the love of learning. 
You sit there with a text with someone across from you. This is sort of the the Jewish learning technology is dialogical. You know, it has to involve conversation with another and pulling out the meaning of the text, at least through the lens of one other person you're reading with. I used to think like, yes, this is what services need. You know, services are boring for people because they're passive. They're, you know, you sit there and, you know, you get preached at. And so this is the way of the future. I'm I not so it. sure it's anymore. Like, really? <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing you say is something ossified. I yeah, I think sometimes now. I mean, I've heard this from a lot of people. Please don't make me. Don't don't make me. Don't don't make me like turn back my. Don't don't make me turn my brain back on. Just. You know, I just want to hear what you think about this. I, Do you, you know? think that that's <laughs> that's great? I mean, I love what I want to go back to your old way. I um the it's sort of like workshopping the Torah. You know. Yes. Um, and there is, I mean, we do that a lot in Bible study. Um, there are these moments. I always think of scripture like poetry where yes. you read a complicated poem and you, you can kind of get it. But if you talk about it with two or three other people and hear how they're responding, which is often very different to how you're responding, a, 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 a larger meaning and, and more cohesive thing starts to emerge. Yes. Do that with scripture, with a psalm. Mm. It, that, that I've witnessed and participated in that happening. But there's a movement... I think, sort of pedagogically these days, where people are who were educated in, like secularly educated in college in a sort of anti-lecture moment, right? Yes. So rather than the, the the sage on the stage, we right. move to the guide by the side. The and guide by the side, right. right. Uh-huh. And, and, and I, I was just reading the other day that there's been a recoil against that in academia from people who no, you you know more than me. I want to hear from you right. about this and trust that I'll, the dialogue will happen internally, right? Yeah. Uh, it sounds like you're experiencing that. A little bit, Does, yeah. Do your sort of democratic impulses, how do you feel about being the, the, the sage on the stage? The times when I appreciate it or when I feel like I have, whether it's a unique insight or something that I really feel like is a take that people have not heard, whether it's my idea or somebody else's idea, um, and so I feel like my best sermons are the ones in which I feel like I might be sharing something with you that you would not have thought of, you know, that even if we pulled this out together, um, this is going to be something I just feel like I need to share with you, you know, like that I'm, I'm sort of evangelizing an idea, right? Um, I think my best, like one of the ones that I'm most, you know, when I think back, I got the most positive feedback on was when I talked about how with the, the holiday of Purim, which is based on the story of Esther, the book of Esther, where I posited that based on based on the rituals of the holiday, based on the text that we read, I'm pretty sure that the rabbis who designed the tradition wanted to subversively suggest that perhaps there is no God to save you. <laughs> perhaps, you know, perhaps everything that we are doing is an elaborate system of, you know, rituals and words and prayers that are directed toward a higher power and that that's really, really, really important. And there has to be one, at least one day of the year when we recognize it could all be a farce and that there are still responsibilities and um, and imperatives that have to move us if we are going to be good people in the world, if we are going to save ourselves and each other. How did that go right? over? It was great because, you know, in the mo- like we're liberal Jews, right? Jews are um, Jews are sort of you know, we pride ourselves on being um, analytical and rational and not taking anything for granted and sort of taking the text and turning it over and, and ripping it apart and analyzing its guts and um 
that leads a lot of a lot of Jewish people to feel really alienated from God language. You know, so like we pray to God, we, you know, we bless God. God is because God, God is, language doesn't hold up to that kind of scrutiny. Um, I think so. I would say and, and I would love to talk more about this with you, a liberal uh, pastor. I think that living in a um, predominantly Christian country in which God is personified as a man, um, which is anathema to Jewish religious thinking, um, has colored the way that Jews think about God. Um, and so they say, I don't believe God is a man. I don't believe God is in the sky somewhere pulling the strings. I mean, I'm sure you hear like a version of this as well. And, you know, so I, I read these prayers and they mean nothing to me because I don't believe in that God. And so then, you know, um, that's an invitation for a conversation about like, okay, well, what do you believe? So if... Jews are carrying around the way we all are, right? The popular sort of like theological concept, right? That they're reacting against, that you're reacting against. Um, how do you deflate that? You deflated that in the pulpit with this Purim sermon. Um, how, what kind of language do you use? Do you, I mean, the Torah is using masculine language yes. for God. Is that what you use in worship at Mishkan or? switch it up I mean yeah. I, I really like that they is becoming a pronoun that we can use for um anyone of any gender or non-gender or you know sort of all genders and um do you use they language sometimes I mean look the the Torah even uses plural language to talk about God sometimes yeah. um and this is where as you know sort of coming out of the the Hebrew tradition um, I'm I'm, an, I'm also an evangelist for Hebrew because I feel like there's so much depth of language that gets lost in the translation from Hebrew to a language that um, doesn't you know that can't capture the theyness of God in Genesis you know so when it says um, God created God created the person Adam male and female he created them in God's image you know that's like the masculine feminine person in one body the you know the the sort of all-encompassing divine quality that all of us have that's both male and female it's not either or which is shocking to a lot of people you know I thought man and woman were created to be partners and you know in a biological way and if and if that's not what the Torah is saying that you know and um how do your right trans parishioners react to that sort of portrait of God, the sort of like gender, both genderless and all-inclusive gender. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think I, I can't speak for individuals, but I can say most people are surprised by that. Yeah. Most people find that, and most people that I've spoken with find that to be a radical idea that they are sure that I, you know, pulled out of some modern book. And I'm like, no, no, right, go like back, you're, you're, Genesis. You're transposing Judith Butler on top yes. of the Torah or yeah, something. Yeah, it's like, the, no, no, just read it. It's amazing. Yeah. It's interesting for that language for Christians. If we start talking about God as they, it doesn't go to a uh, a place that's either transcendent of or inclusive of all of our concepts of gender. It goes mm. Trinitarian immediately, Trinitarian, yes. which is really interesting. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, we try the same thing. So. And as you are well aware, and there, there are more of them in, in the Torah than there are in the New Testament, but we try to mine scripture yes. for um, female imagery for God. Yes. And it's there. Yes. Um, just this last week, uh, I preached on a passage from Philippians where 
the the letter start or no not Philippians second Peter and the letter starts and Peter says first Peter the letter starts and Peter says uh, drink of the word of God like infants drinking pure milk from yeah. the mother's breast yeah well that's not masculine imagery that's um, right. when you preach theologically what do you think is happening what does your tradition think is happening and like in rabbinical school what were you taught is going on what's the dynamic and the purpose of a sermon so i think this is this is even where the word sermon is a word that we've adopted into the jewish community to describe when a rabbi or leader gets in front of people and speaks as a sort of catch-all but has that word been imported from christianity I think so. I, I think so. In that we have a bunch of different words to describe different intentionality that a, a person speaking in a community might bring to the words that they're giving that are different, you know? So a sermon might be, you know, equivalent to like a Devar Torah, a word of Torah, um, or a drash, um, which comes from the word midrash or um, doresh to explore to investigate to um, interrogate to uncover right and so there's an element of um, there's an element of teaching you know of sharing of teaching um, that a person is doing whoever is giving a devar torah a drash a sermon Um, it doesn't have to be a rabbi and so you know usually usually that has a quality of there's some there's some question that's bothering me. There is some line in this week's Torah portion that jumps out at me as relevant to what is happening in the world right now that I want to put into conversation. Um, I want to put the the news into conversation with the Torah, into conversation with us here in this room, and see what it reveals to us about how we might move forward in the week or think about our lives or ourselves. Um, is the is the notion that the Torah passage has this sort of ultimate authority, has the last word, that you're doing that that dialogue between your own heart, contemporary events, and Torah, and you're looking for guidance, for authority, for an answer? Is that the dynamic there? Um, or is it more... Is it, Certainly an answer. I mean, I don't imagine that people walk out of a service or a, whether it's, whether it's like a Devar Torah, a, a sermon or a, or a teaching, you know, a sort of like group teaching that we're doing that ends with, you know, me sort of putting the final period at the end of that, at the end of this section before we move on. I don't expect people leave thinking, I have got to incorporate this thing into my life. You know, wow, I, my mind's been blown. Um, my greatest hope for these moments is that people think maybe, just maybe, I can shift in subtle ways the way that I think about this issue. Maybe, just maybe, the Torah has taught me a little bit, um, uh, given me a perspective that I would not have otherwise thought of, right? Because otherwise, what's the point in consulting Torah? Um, why, why bring Torah into the conversation if it's so, you know, so sort rather of an irrelevant than, third party? Rather than coming under the authority of this great thing, it's more expanding one's vision. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think so because I mean there are so many different there are so many different inputs that we all have access to nowadays. I think you know probably three hundred years ago. Um, or even more recently than that, 
you basically had, you know, as an input, whatever the local gossip was um, and whatever your rabbi told you week to week in services, you know, and um, in conversation with, you know, your, your own experience with the text. But for most people who are not spending the week studying, you can show up once a week and hear, hear the word being preached or, you know, hear, hear the rabbi giving a sermon. And like that would be your input on, you know, wisdom, how to live your life, raise your children, you know, orient yourself, you know, while you're feeling feelings of jealousy or rage or whatever it is and work with those feelings and, and live a more meaningful life. Now, like, you you know, open your email and there are five different, you know, tips for the day from, you know, BuzzFeed and Time Magazine and, you know, Natural Health and, you know, some list you didn't ask to be on, but now they send you emails anyway. And, you know, the pop-ups, the, you know, 20 different keys to living a grateful life. And all of those have a sort of religious resonance to them, but it's secular wisdom and, you know, meditation is, you know, coming back, I think, as a, as a real powerful tool that people are using to ground themselves and wake up to their own feelings and aspirations and desires. There are all of these ways that are um, not Torah to become, you know, wiser and more generous and and more aware in your life. And so Torah has to be bringing something um, or highlighting something in in a specific way. I usually don't think of the sermon or the teaching um, as separate from the the whole ex, the whole prayer service experience on a particular night um and so you know there are different prayers that um that flow through the service that kind of take a person on an emotional journey um that is personal but also connected to the world you know and so on a friday night that journey begins with yearning. It begins with, you know, the language we were talking about, God language. It um, talks about God as a soulmate that I'm like yearning to see and to touch and to feel. Um, there's a sexual element to it. I mean, it's very poetic, but it's, I think it's it's trying to evoke within the person saying the words um, that desire that you've been tamping down all week that like the yearning that you've been you know sublimating because you had to go to work and there were things you needed to do and you needed to catch the train and um and you know on Friday night to say no it's actually like in order to in order to enter Shabbat space in order to enter the spiritual space of being present and being grateful and being in real time with real people you know turning off your phone and putting in your bag and um and just you know really being alive in a way that we're not able to be, you know, in six days of the week. So the words kind of give us this um, roadmap. So the teaching, what I keep calling the sermon, is integrated into this larger liturgical whole. But it doesn't feel to you, which we have the same thing, of course, but it doesn't feel to you as maybe radically distinct a moment as... Perhaps I'm assuming it might be, as it is in my tradition. Like, to answer my own question, the classical Protestant understanding of what's happening in a sermon theologically is that there's the possibility when I preach here in Chicago that the exact same dynamic will unfold that happened when Paul preached in Mm -hmm. Corinth, that Christ himself will show up 
when the word is explicated and preached. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, where Christ is rightly spoken of, Christ is present. So that God, God's self will alight upon the, the interchange, mm-hmm. right? Between the word preached and the congregation absorbing it and reacting mm-hmm. to it. Um, it doesn't happen, you know, there's no guarantee it's up to God whether or not God shows up, but that, but that, that possibility is always there. Mm. And there's, a, there's almost a sacramental understanding of preaching in, in a sort of orthodox Protestantism. And, and so then I think almost by definition then, that moment, that exercise is going to get a place of privilege over the other mm. and and sometimes that dynamic is unfortunate right that prioritization is unfortunate um because it relegates other aspects of the worship experience at least in the egocentric preacher's mind to second place but i i'm, I'm hearing you describe a, a liturgy that is much more integrated i i think the same dynamic that you're describing can happen and does happen all over the place um and uh, that especially can happen when there's like a, a rabbi cantor um, sort of um, not not like a competitive dynamic, but there's one person who's leading the lit- liturgical part and there's one person who's responsible for giving a sermon. Um, and each feels that their part is what people are here for. This is where God walks into the room. This is, you know, and, and the cantor, the person leading music, worship music might say, no, people are moved when they hear the notes and when they hear the, you know, like this, this is where that the real never happens. happens in Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> I see, you know, and, and the rabbi sort of feels like, okay, enough already with the yai, die die. Like, let me, let me, I, I have some words to share here. And, you know, it might be a 10 minute long sermon and, you know, you just ate five minutes of my, right? So I think that dynamic happens all over the place. I, um, at Mishkan, I'm the one who sort of holds both roles. So are I, you both I, cantor and? Yeah, I kind of, I wear both hats. Um, and so what that means is that, <laughs> that um, that tension is just going on within me at all times throughout the service. And so I'm, I'm asking myself how, you know, if I wanted to make a certain point, you know, in a sermon and I realize, you know, I think it's it's eight o'clock and people are tired. Maybe tonight we scrap the sermon and, I, you know, that that point about whatever whatever the issue is, whatever the sensitivity is or the you know message was going to be, uh, I'll, I'll figure out another place to put it. And, and so there is a kind of integration that is a privilege that I, I feel like I I have. Um, there's a group of people, I guess, in a, in a Christian setting, it's called like the praise team, or, you know, we call it the davening team. Daven is Yiddish for, you know, people who are like really getting into the prayer experience. So the davening team, um, they know that even if we've rehearsed something that's going to go a certain way, there's always the chance that Rabbi Lizzie might make a game time decision that we will do it differently or that they will be leading prayer and I'll be speaking over the prayer leading because there's, you know, something in this that gets evoked that just like needs to be, that needs to be said. Is that kind of spontaneity and improvisatorial like allowance? Is that unique to Mishkan or is that typical to Jewish worship? I think it depends on where you go. Um, Especially on the high holidays, which tend to be a very highly choreographed experience in many places, I don't think you see that kind of improvisation between like choir and cantor. I haven't, I haven't seen that so much. Um, part of Mishkan's mission, though, is a kind of engagement of the next generation of 
Jewish person and and honestly any person I mean we have people on the davening team who are becoming Jewish who are not Jewish now Um, and there are many people in the community who are figuring out their relationship to Judaism um, on many different levels Um, by way of engaging right in a very intentional way trying to um, not just create a product that we think people will like and show up for but actually involve the, the, you know, quote unquote target audience themselves in creating the experience that we want people to have. So we don't have like choir rehearsal where, you know, the choir director gives you the notes and you prepare them, you know, and the davening team prepares them, you know, to sound musically flawless. Instead, you know, we spend Sunday after Sunday after Sunday all summer playing and singing together and certainly working our way through the High Holiday Liturgy, but doing a lot of the kind of improvisation and playing that I encourage people to do spiritually in services. You know, 1,500 people that come to High Holidays, I'll say, if, if this isn't working for you, what's happening on the page, close the book and, you know, just just pray spontaneously. Use, use the words in your heart, you know. It doesn't matter where we are. So you practice improvisation. And then you can have at the high holidays when you have fifteen hundred people there, you can have this larger body of people all experiencing what you've been working toward over the course of the year. It's beautiful. I think sometimes worship can get, um, well, it can feel like you're like you're at a play, yes. you know, or at the movies or at a concert or something, and you're someone's performing, and and you are there to appreciate or critique the performance. Um, G.K. Chesterton has this great line where he's railing against church choirs. Uh And he says, you know, we all sing. What's next? Are we going to find the people who laugh the best and pay them to laugh for us? Wow. Wow. It stings, that critique. Um, But those moments, so in a way, the, the liturgy is kind of a script. Right. Yeah. It is a script and it's and it's the same pretty much every week. I mean, it's the same script pretty much every day. There are little little changes that happen, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, little tiny changes that if you're really paying attention, you'll catch. Um, and if you're not or you don't pray daily, you won't even know we're there. Right. There are little changes that happen on the high holidays. The script is, you know, an expanded script. But it's like the, the most delightful moments, strangely, are the ones where we break script and you know, I, last year on Yom Kippur, you know, I I started my the sermon that I didn't really give by saying, you know what, I had a whole sermon written, but I I actually think I, I don't want to give it tonight. I think we should just go home, and um and and some people said to me that was very unsatisfying. I was waiting for the sermon, and some people said to me, you know, I, like. I felt like you named what I was feeling, which was that I was full. I, you know, we just spent two hours like singing and davening and and praying and opening in all of these different ways. And I felt like, I actually felt like that was a really good decision that most rabbis would never make because they've been working for three months on their sermon for They've been waiting for the cantor to finally be quiet. That's right. Exactly. So, um. Are you unusual in that you combine those two roles? Is that. I mean, it depends on where you are. Do you have colleagues who do that? I mean. In a small synagogue that has one clergy person, um, it sometimes is a rabbi and it sometimes is a cantor, and and then they'll do sort of everything. Um, in larger synagogues, there generally are like a rabbi and a cantor, or maybe more than one of each. Um, yeah. So it depends. It depends. I, I want to <laughs> ask about what the church can learn from the success of Mishkan, and you understand yourselves as a post post-denominational Judaism yeah. um, 
First of all, what does that mean? Okay. Um, so the denominations in Judaism as we think of them today, Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, Reconstructionist, Renewal, you know, there are a lot of different shades within each denomination. There are sort of these, the large three buckets that I think are becoming increasingly um, increasingly challenged um, as, you know, the reform movement that used to really stand for personal autonomy and throwing off the shackles of distinctive Jewish rituals, you know, uh, Shabbat on a Saturday, keeping kosher, wearing a kippah or a talit, you know, the, the four-cornered garment with tassels. Like in, in reform synagogues 50 years ago, you didn't see those idiosyncratic trappings of Jewish practice. You know, the feeling was like Judaism is about justice. It is about ethical monotheism, belief in one God. And, you know, that that's what Judaism is. And I think people discovered in the reform movement, way over, I'm, I'm holding my, my hand way over here on the left, that that was, um, for the most part, an unsatisfying way to be a Jew. Because as you said before, part of being Jewish is being idiosyncratic and having a very different texture and language and set of practices and texts to draw from that give us our sense of identity. So if you flush all that and then hold on to the sort of abstract uh, ethos that all those things were actually getting you toward in the first place, you're left without much. You're left without much, yeah. And so a lot of um, reform congregations are moving very much more toward, you know, what conservative communities would say looks like their distinctive way of practice, which is, you know, you can be a, a rational person and still keep kosher and keep Shabbat. And, you know, what makes Judaism distinctive is its orientation toward the, you know, the mitzvot, the laws, the commandments, and that they evolve over time and they change and they adapt, but you don't throw them out. You you, you hold on to them and you massage them and, and they grow with you over time. Um, you know, so I was ordained in the conservative movement. I grew up in the reform movement and I spent a lot of time in college, you know, and now I guess my hand's over here on the right, um, hanging out with Orthodox families and community. And um, the Orthodox world has a more, um, I would say, a more traditional and literal interpretation of where Torah comes from. And the answer is like Torah comes from God, the halakha, the Jewish law tradition practices that we do ultimately stem from God's word. We practice it because this is what God wants us to do. And there's a particular way that we do it. It certainly evolves over time, but much more slowly than you know, the the liberal movements would evolve. And so you've kind of, you know, got these three buckets. The Reconstructionist movement is thrown in there. There, you know, have always been different ways of thinking about, you know, thinking from theologians and philosophers within each movement. The post-denominational world just wants to say, I think, actually, all, all of these movements have something really important and holy um, to share um, and to help guide a uh, meaningful, deep, well-informed, inspired Jewish practice, but none of them have the exclusive hold or claim on truth. And let's not pretend that that's the case. Let's figure out like what is meaningful and powerful and not slap a label on it. You know? So are you self-consciously drawing from elements of all three? I think so. And, and beyond. I mean, I think there's also... There's also an openness to integrate the the best of what, you know, the discourse is beyond the Jewish world in 
um, how we're talking about God, how we're involving our bodies in prayer, music. You know, some of some of our favorite music that we're using right now is Krishna Das, um, who is a who is a, I don't know if like a Hindu kirtan leader, which is a kind of like sort of repetitive chanting, um, Eastern inspired spiritual music, applying applying that music to Jewish psalms. Wow. Right? So, you know, and, and it's it's explosive what happens when you begin to creatively um, combine culture and tradition. Do you think that you've got, I mean, I think anybody serving a longstanding congregation feels some jealousy when they hear about mm what I see often as new church starts, right? Yeah. What's the, I don't know what the equivalent phrase in Judaism is. Um, Startup community. Okay. Right? Um, sure. Because there, are, there isn't that sense of, um, no, this is how we do it. These are our traditions and we deviate from them at our own peril, right? We unmoor ourselves from the way it's been done here for not, not even in a, in a denominational sense, but in just a local congregational sense, right? This is how we've done this here for 150 years. And if we move off of that and we start bringing in Hindu chants, the ceiling's going to fall in. Do you feel lucky to have the ability to be that experimental and that free? Yes, I feel lucky. And I feel like um, that it comes with a responsibility to be, I don't know if the word is tasteful or it's not conservative, but aware, you know, aware of how a certain melody might resonate. Discerning. Yeah, sure. Discerning, you know. Um, yeah, but but I, I feel very lucky. I, I feel very blessed and grateful. And um, part of what is encouraging about about like this moment, you know, and, and doing this work right now is that you can get feedback really easily from um, from many different many different uh, people who are watching, um, people who are trying to understand what's the next iteration of Judaism going to be. Who you know, whose ears are to the ground, who are paying attention to the podcasts and the music online and the buzz and the articles and you know, there was a, a cantor in New Jersey, you know, somebody who's like a staunch conservative movement, you know, hardcore movement guy who wrote to me and he said, I'm compiling, I'm compiling a list um, of the, the best music of the emergent spiritual community world, the independent minion world, you know, so Mishkan is sort of one of these independent communities. He said, um, from the stuff that I've heard online, what you guys do is just, it's just, it's just awesome. You know, I want to bring it into my community. And so I also feel blessed that, you know, by virtue of technology right now, um, the ideas and the experiments that we're running, and I do feel like every every week is an experiment, um, can can be given wings somewhere else. In some traditional conservative synagogue in New Jersey, they're using our Alenu. That's know? great. So there's a there's a cross pollination going on yes. where you're borrowing and transforming these older older traditions, but they're also reaching yeah. back into what you're doing. Lizzie, thank you so much for this great conversation. Thank you. It's so good to talk to you. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Centuries. Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thorngate. <laughs>